Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. Today's episode is part three of a sub-series I decided to hold on leading women wave makers in the American blue economy. And I borrow from the name of the Wave Makers podcast on ASPN hosted by Tamara Khan. Be sure to check that, that offering out. It's a great show. And uh, this, this little sub-series is a chance for me to highlight a few women who are making notable contributions to our ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes economies. Before I begin, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Now, I'm just delighted to introduce three exceptional women wave makers in the American blue economy today. And these are three women who are making their waves under the water. First up is Megan Heaney-Greer, a champion freediver, ocean explorer, educator, and conservationist. Uh, Megan, thanks for being on our show for the second time. It's great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tim. Good to be here. Cool, cool. And next, we're joined by Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser. She's an assistant scientist in the biology department at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or HUI, and is a technical and scientific diver extraordinaire. It is so great to have you here, Kirsten. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be here. All right. And we also have Stephanie Gandula. She is a resource protection coordinator and maritime archaeologist at NOAA's Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And she's also a dive instructor. Stephanie, thanks for getting off the water today so quickly and uh, making it here to the show. It's my pleasure, Tim. It's great to be here in such wonderful company. Absolutely. Very well said, Stephanie. Thank you. Well, let's just dive into it. Um, I want to start with Megan. And Megan, I brought you on because your work to raise awareness in ocean conservation recently uh, is really key to this show and series because we often talk about conservation being just foundational to our blue economy. And you know, you're able to highlight uh, conservation needs uh, in such a great way because of your celebrity status. So let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and your freediving origins, if you don't mind, just briefly, and maybe some of your television and film experience, and then we'll dive into some details after. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so, you know, really, I have a very eclectic resume, I guess you could say, and it's all tied together with the water and being underwater in particular. Uh, so back in 1996, I established the first freedive record for both men and women in the United States in the constant weight category. So that's swimming down and swimming up. So essentially there was no record at the time. I established the first one with a dive to 155 feet. Wow. Uh, that, 
first year. <laughs> that first year. Yeah. That, and that was like, I mean, I have to say people go way, way deeper now, but you know, I kind of got in on, on that ground level. You know, I, I have a freediver.com as, as an example of how old school freediver I am. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, and then the second year I did, I bettered my record uh, to 165 feet and then really branched off into a bunch of different things having to do with free diving and some work I was doing, um, just basically documenting uh, marine predator behavior out in the wild. So the American alligator underwater, sharks, uh, just different marine life. And and um, it was a very different time then, but we were capturing all of these encounters and how all of these things things fit together was with freediving, like I said, but then we had this footage and we ended up with um, the team I was diving with at the time and myself. I We uh, had a show on Animal Planet back in uh, the late 90s. And uh, from there, I started doing stunt diving. So, and then doing a lot of on-camera work in general. And I had been modeling uh, since I was young, uh, like 14 years old. I had started doing that in Miami Beach. I grew up in the Florida Keys, which kind of makes makes sense. I should have led with that, Tim, you know, like, because yeah. then people are, because I'm hailing at the moment from Colorado and people were like, what? Why are you? <laughs> How'd you get out there? So, yeah. So I grew up in the Florida Keys and that was where I did my free diving records. From there, it just lit, you know, was like this watery journey through all these other uh, experiences and and stunt diving was definitely one of the highlights. It was a lot of fun. My my very first stunt diving job was for uh, this unknown film that was coming out at the time of called Pirates of the Caribbean. And oh my who, gosh! Who would have thought of where that was going to go? Right. Uh, so I did that and did you know a bunch of other uh, television series and and some films and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it's really, you know, full circle for me is bringing, uh, is bringing it back to conservation and ultimately it's my connection. And, and I think for, for everybody thinking about that, that place that you're connected to out in nature, whatever that might be for me, it's underwater. And, and for, uh, my, my fellow divers, all of us here on the show, it's underwater. I'm assuming is our place. And when you have that connection to it, it, it becomes a lot easier to see that path forward with conservation. And so that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of the, my background, my watery roots, if you will. Well, just they're, they're wonderful, I must say. So thank you so much, Megan. And Kirsten, uh, now you're at Woods Hole and uh, you're an assistant, scient assistant scientist. And uh, tell us about you, what your scientific accomplishments and interests are right now in terms of research and a little bit about your diving as it relates to that, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So just for those who don't know, assistant scientist um, means that I'm on the faculty and relatively early career. I've been in my position for about four years. My research interests all center around isolated island-like habitats. I actually um, lived in Germany for a year before grad school, and I remember I was assigned to a project looking at photos of the seafloor at the time, and I was flipping through photo after photo of just mud with some brittle stars on it until I got to a photo with a rock. And these are called drop stones. They're rocks of terrestrial origin that become frozen in glaciers, carried out to sea by an iceberg when it calves off of a glacier, um, and then it drops to the seafloor when the iceberg melts. And I had this light bulb that 
the rocks were a lot more interesting because things tended to aggregate on them. And this led me to a whole series of questions about how do island-like habitats function on the seafloor? So part of my dissertation um, back when I was a PhD student was studying those drop stones, comparing them to what we know about island biogeography for things like birds in the Pacific. Um, and I kind of stumbled onto shipwrecks as island-like habitats. My PhD advisor tried to get me um, interested in this research expedition that was looking at shipwrecks because he told me they're basically giant metal drop stones. And um, of course, I know now and I can say, you know, spend a long time talking about how shipwrecks are unique. They're much more complex than just a simple rock, but that same principle of an island-like habitat. So. The things that I study are the sessile invertebrates, the things like the anemones and the sponges, things like that, that live in one place attached to a surface for their whole adult life. But then as a, a young individual, as a larva, um, they go off into the water column and are carried by ocean currents to new habitats. And so that process of dispersal is what fascinates me the most because every shipwreck that I have ever laid eyes on has a species on it that I would not expect to be there based on what I know about its larval dispersal. Most of them I would think would hang close to their parents and yet there's the species out on a shipwreck in the middle of nowhere so what is it doing there? How did it get there? And what does that mean for the connectivity of the community? Um, recently, I've also gotten into a project on coral reefs in Palau, same sort of questions, um, larval dispersal. There's these heat tolerant corals that live in these semi-enclosed lagoons. So the question is, can those corals survive if they disperse to an outer reef? Um, and then as Stephanie, I'm sure we'll expand on in more detail. Um, I've also gotten involved in a project using eDNA on shipwrecks. So broadly, I'm a benthic ecologist. I love invertebrate animals and I study island-like habitats. Yeah, I just love it all. This is so neat. And uh, you know, Kirsten, I, I also brought you on because uh, I've had many scientists on our episodes. And in fact, one that we talked about fisheries was my daughter's uh, professor at Nova Southeastern. And it was fish biology was the course. But, you know, again, like conservation, science is foundational to our sustainable blue economy. So it's so great to have you on and talk about what you're learning about our fascinating oceans. All of it sounds great. And it's, it's wonderful. There are so many connections between you and our other guests, like Stephanie, talking about island-like habitats, uh, shipwrecks. Well, um, in Stephanie's case, she's an expert on wooden ones in the Great Lakes, among other things. And I know she was working on your eDNA project. So Stephanie, uh, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to our audience and talk about what your resource uh, protection work in, in Thunder Bay does and anything else uh, really about that and, and your diving. Yes, I'm happy to expand a bit on shipwrecks that um, Kirsten was talking about. I am in the heart of the Great Lakes here in Alpena, Michigan, uh, the world's largest, the Great Lakes, uh, the world's largest freshwater uh, surface supply on the planet. So a very important um, for many reasons for, for our, our blue economy. And, uh, you know, we're out there on the lake today, beautiful sunshiny day, some about three to four foot waves, but we could see many freighters throughout the day. I probably saw six or seven freighters, uh, you know, 
really a big part of the, the not just the economy in the Great Lakes, but um, the world economy. So I can talk more about that later. But back to what Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary is all about. We are part of NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, which is a network of sites all around our country that protects more than 600,000 square miles of our um, national treasures underwater. And these treasures are, of course, many natural treasures like deep sea canyons, um, coral reefs, migration routes for humpback whales, but then also those cultural resources like the hundreds of shipwrecks that we protect in the 4,300 square miles of northwestern Lake Huron. Um, what is a really rewarding part of my job as the resource protection coordinator is that I get to uh, participate in all aspects of protecting these resources. And that means, you know, driving the boat today to support Kirsten's a study of uh, the potential for eDNA uh, detection on shipwreck sites. Uh, tomorrow, I might be working with a group of fifth graders to um, understand and really build their own underwater robots or remotely operated vehicles and then test them out in our, our tank here. So my job is very diverse and that, that really speaks to, to what this resource protection means. Um, and like Megan was saying, the importance of connecting people to a place, that's really the first step in, in getting people interested in conservation, like she was saying, but you know, really inspiring them to care about the entire ecosystem. So I've, I've had a lot of fun working here in, in Michigan uh, for the last 11 years to, you know, diving on the shipwrecks, of course, but uh, really connecting people to these, these sites. Uh, one, another very special thing about Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary is not just the hundreds of shipwrecks we have um, and all the different types. Uh, we've got old wooden schooners. We've got huge steel freighters. But probably the most important and connecting back to the importance of, of connection to a place is the accessibility. We have very deep shipwrecks here, 300 feet deep with the mass still standing upright that technical divers uh, will travel from all over the world to experience. But we also have very shallow shipwrecks, um, some on, on the beach, stranded on the beach, some eight feet deep, 10 feet deep, 20 feet deep that you can visit while snorkeling, while um, paddle boarding, kayaking, fishing, or if you don't want to get wet at all, um, go out on the glass bottom boat. Ah, I love your sanctuary. And we'll talk more about that, Stephanie. Thank you so much. What, what is such a great aspect of all three of our guests here today is that they're very good at what they do, whether it be archaeology, science, and record-setting freediving, but but they're also expert communicators. And none of, none of these ocean activities matter as much as when they are communicated to the public in a way that helped them further conservation and awareness and understanding. And and going back to Megan Henny Greer, you are quite accomplished in that. And so you, you talked about being on Animal Planet. Um, do you, what other kind of uh, place or uh, events or media venues in that have an educational benefit might you want to share with us uh, in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's where, you know, my path with conservation really has taken me is into outreach and education. And ultimately, you know, what I'm striving for is impact. And so I've collaborated over the years with a lot of nonprofit organizations doing, um, you know, mentoring uh, with Women Divers Hall of Fame, which I uh, was inductee back in 2000, class of 2000. And, right, you know, right the, back. yeah. 
way back. Yeah, that's the inaugural class. So, uh, and yeah, and it's really an incredible and influential group of women in diving. And also, you know, with the scholarships that we give out every year, it's it's pretty incredible. We do uh, over 70 thousand dollars in scholarships and grants. So that's a great thing for divers of any age to check out. And, um, and we do have some for, uh, for men as well. So it's not just women, but it's uh, a majority is women, but I've done some mentoring with uh, women divers hall of fame and some other organizations. I also frequently do, uh, in, you know, in person. So it's been a little unusual over the last few years, but for all of us, but I do a lot of in-person uh, keynote talks and just speaking to different groups. And in that capacity, it's some of the, you know, most uh, inspiring for me is when I talk with kids, especially. And so just, you know, different marine science camps and things like that and collaborating, like I said, with nonprofits. Now, a lot of the um, other work that I've done is working on camera. So I've been involved in the production side of things for a long time, whether it has to do with a documentary or a web series and things like that, mostly, um, you know, leading with adventure. Like I always like to describe it that that's the wagon I like to, or, you know, I should say the skiff I like to ride in on with the adventure in the background, you know, whether it's uh, free diving records, like you said, or stunt diving for Hollywood films or traversing, you know, Snake Island. I did a discovery show that was based on this insane island that was full of venomous snakes. So that was Gosh. an adventure. But, <laughs> you know, so it's like I have this, this um, eclectic background tied together with the water. But the, and that's fun to talk about. And, and, you know, people, just as far as the stories go, it can be exciting uh, in some ways to hear about diving with alligators or, you know, being on Snake Island. But what it really circles back around to is this this connection to place, uh, you know, like we, we've been speaking about. And then also like, okay, so what what do I do? What can I do? And I think that that's really where so many resources we have, whether it is a talk you're listening to or a documentary or whatever it is, that it kind of stops there. And a lot of times we're left hanging, you know, as an audience that has our heart cracked wide open because we know the state of the planet. We know the state of our ocean and environment and stuff. And we we want to do something now, like we've been moved, right? And so you have all these hearts and minds and ears listening and ready to like take action. You know, it's, it's a, an and all our fins on the ground, so to speak. And it's uh, such an opportunity, whether it's an in-person talk or I developed a, a web series I was doing called The Imperfect Conservationist. So that's kind of the brand that I developed to lead my the talks that I do and, and things like that to... Um, you know, for the outreach and impact uh, is that we're all imperfect and we get tied up in this notion that we have to do it all and we have to do it all perfectly, or I'm just going to wait until I am ready to do it that way. And it's, it's never happens that way. So it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's what I like to call giving a dose of of conservation empowerment. And that really is just an understanding of what you can do right now to make the world around you a better place, to have an impact and inspire others to make some positive changes too. And that's where change starts. It starts at home and it radiates out. 
And um, yeah, so that's, you know, some of the other work that I've done that really uh, is exciting and fulfilling for me. Uh, however, it also is something that um, gives back so much to me to see people get new ideas and to share with me what they've done that works or what doesn't and to kind of, you know, all rise together because working in this field and, and you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm definitely not alone in this, but it, it can be really... Um, just uh, you can end up feeling really helpless. And that's where some of this messaging was born from for me, where I was like, okay, if I'm feeling this way, it's likely other people are too. And like, let's just all embrace our humanness, our imperfectness and make changes anyway. I love that, Megan. That was just wonderful. And I love that all three of you are making such a positive impact in your in the areas you're in at, all underwater, which is, and, and above water, of course, when you tell your stories. Uh, so just, that's terrific. And I really got to appreciate this production side of your your work, uh, Megan, because just recently I've told some of our listeners, I went on a uh, a cage dive with some great wikes off, off, right, sharks off Guadalupe Island, Mexico with my wife. And it was part of a scientific expedition with the Marine Conservation Science Institute. And we documented the species part of a 22-year time series. But Nat Geo sent a crew and and the episode that our, our that was filmed around our cruise was just aired two weeks ago, and it was called Counting Jaws. But those guys were professionals. I really admired how they set up their their work and filmed the shoot. And and it's interesting that none of us we there were twenty of us out there collecting data in the cages, and they never got us in one background shot, except for one where my wife was in the back while they were suiting up. It's kind of funny. Um, she was pretty proud of that that quick shot, but. But Megan, just that's great. And, you know, interestingly, um, similarly, in kind of a little bit of a different way, Kirsten at Woods Hole, you published scientific papers for a similar impact, maybe with a bit different audience. But, but, and, and, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to have our, our listeners hear about the project that you and I uh, p- partnered to, I guess, move forward. We were seeking NOAA funding, didn't get it yet, but we're still looking for, for others. And, uh, and would you mind sharing a little bit about it since you were the lead author? I, I just think it's a great story to tell because it had an outreach component to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So that project that we put together um, involved an interdisciplinary team from Woods Hole, um, some collaborators from elsewhere in the U.S., but also and this is key, uh, partners on the ground in Puerto Rico from Puerto Rico Sea Grant, because the call that we were responding to uh, was published by the NOAA Office of Exploration, and they were seeking projects to explore in the U.S. EEZ. And we decided we wanted to go explore in the Mona Passage, which is on the western side of Puerto Rico, because the U.S. Caribbean EEZ is actually a really understudied area. There's a lot to be discovered there. It's been historically um, neglected by exploration efforts. And so our team was proposing to take this framework that I call maritime heritage ecology. That is the fusion of biology and archaeology and apply it to the Mona Passage. So this is an area that was actually very important 
for transit during the transatlantic slave trade, but also in later historical periods, the shipwrecks that we could potentially find in the Mona Passage carry the stories of those Hispanic Americans and Puerto Ricans, you know, expressing agency and controlling their own little territory of the ocean. So we wanted to tell those stories through the archaeology, but at the same time, apply the biology because it's an area populated with coral reefs and corals across the world are in crisis because of climate change right now. And one of the um, one of the things that's always brought up as kind of a beacon of hope is that mesophotic reefs, these are ones that are deeper than standard recreational diving range, so below about 40 meters or 130 feet, um, where there's less light, that's what mesophotic means, um, tend to be in better shape than shallower reefs because the shallower you are, the more sun you're exposed to, the higher temperatures you're exposed to, the more likely you are to bleach. But down in that mesophotic zone, corals tend to be healthier. And unfortunately, the science isn't quite there yet to understand whether mesophotic reefs could repopulate shallower depths. I'm personally skeptical because at mesophotic depths, there tends to be lower temperature, less light, those corals are adapted to different conditions. But what we were proposing to do is go into the Mona Passage, do some preliminary side scan sonar um, to locate shipwrecks and um, mesophotic reef sites. And Puerto Rico Sea Grant, our partners there, were extremely helpful during the proposal phase of suggesting sites that would be really interesting to look in, places that there's already known maritime heritage or mesophotic reefs. Um, and then the second stage of the project we partnered with uh, Diving with a Purpose, and our goal was to take as many technical scientific divers as we could to those shipwreck and mesophotic reef sites and explore and collect those baseline data on what is there, um, what stories do those shipwrecks tell us, and what are the mesophotic reefs doing? How are they influencing the environment around them? As Tim mentioned, unfortunately, it wasn't funded, but we were going to take outreach on maritime heritage ecology into schools in Puerto Rico. I really fell in love with that proposal. I'm I really sad too. it didn't get picked. <laughs> I, I know all those folks in Puerto, Puerto Rico, Sea uh, Grant, and, uh, and the folks at the um, the uh, Caracus, the Caribbean IUS, uh, Integrated Ocean Observing System folks, and and at University of Puerto Rico, I was so keen on that too. Um, and that's why I wanted you to talk about it, because if anybody's out there uh, knows people who would fund such a project, uh, let us know. We are we are looking for that. And, and I'm, we're not giving up on this great project. And, um, and and thank you. Your leadership in the proposal development was just terrific, Kirsten. I'm so, I'm so glad I've gotten to know you. I'm glad I've gotten to know you, Tim. You're definitely a member of Team Shipwreck now. And thank you so much for forging the connections to Puerto Rico. Absolutely. That's who we are. That's right. And hey, uh, you mentioned um, mesophotic. Please help. What What is the depth ranges for our listeners of the mesophotic region? Mesophotic, um, so meso meaning middle, photic referring to light. It's between standard recreational diving depths, which is surface down to about 40 meters or 130 feet. Um, so that's the top of the mesophotic range. And then the bottom of the mesophotic range is where you start with the true deep sea, which is at the edge of the continental shelf break, or usually about 200 meters. So mesophotic is between 
40 to 200. Outstanding. And I have to ask you this because I heard some numbers. What's What are your deepest dives? Um, on the record or off the record? <laughs> uh, yeah, my wife would answer is, the same way. Yeah, this is uh, by definition on the record. My deepest dive, um, I'm certified down to 70 meters. Uh, that's using Trimix. I dive on a closed circuit rebreather. Um, my most recent 70 meter dive, my husband and I were on vacation in Bonaire, but I'm always doing science in the back of my head. And um, we went down to about 70 meters um, on the southern end of Bonaire, and we found some amazing 19th century anchors that were covered in sea fans. Uh, It was a great dive. Do you have photos of that? I do. Yeah, I can send you some. Oh, please do. 70 meters, folks. This is real deep. This is super technical. It is like climbing Mount Everest underwater. Uh, that's awesome, Kirsten. I remember you telling me that story. I just wanted to get that out there. Now, another accomplished diver who is an instructor and is a specialist in shipwrecks and maritime heritage is Stephanie Gandula at Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And Stephanie, you mentioned about maritime heritage and uh, briefly, and you had more to say about some of the lakers and ships on the lakes. Um, talk to us about that mission and your experience or anything you want to go there. We, I, I just love that topic. Well, we are really fortunate here at um, the headquarters for Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in that we have a a 20,000 square foot visitor center where we can accomplish that important outreach that Megan and Kirsten are talking about, whether it's uh, scientific presentations, um, lectures, and Kirsten and and Megan, I'm inviting you right now to please come to to Alpina and um, and present to our community. I know they would they would just appreciate it and really love it. So right outside my office, where I'm sitting right now, is this this visitor center, which is um, interactive um, exhibits. We have a life size schooner out there, so it really makes it. Um, a, a great platform for us to talk about our, our main mission, which is getting people into their sanctuary, making those connections. So then, you know, shipwrecks really are the hook, right? They're fascinating stories. Um, everyone loves those shipwreck stories, those human stories about our ocean and Great Lakes. And once you have them hooked and they they care about the place, then they're they're taking that that hopefully getting to the community level action to protect our ocean and Great Lakes. Um, some of the outreach uh, that we do here includes a annual film festival, and an ocean film festival, and just thinking about how, you know, Megan was saying, exposing people to these, these issues that our ocean and Great Lakes face. I mean, it, it, it can leave you feeling overwhelmed um, it can leave you feeling, well, gosh, what what can I do as just an individual? And it's so important to take that next step with our audiences to to give empower them um, with that uh, that positivity that both Kirsten and Megan do such a great job of of you know you just hear it in their voices. It's inspiring. Um, you, you lead the the people to that next step of conservation and also really understanding that. Each of us can make a difference, even with these over, sometimes overwhelming um, circumstances. Uh, also, the um, connecting that interdisciplinary research and connecting the biology and the archaeology, it's just, it's really the only way forward for, for all of us to work together, um, you know, to understand how, not only how these, um, 
the the critters. Sorry, I forgot exactly, Kirsten, what you were calling your favorite critters, the invertebrates, right? Simple word. Um, the, the, the critters that you love, not only understanding the issues they're facing, um, their life cycles, um, but also under understanding how they interact with those those cultural resources, those shipwrecks. Just this year, we here in, in Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary launched a freshwater acidification study. And it's, it's really the first time um, a, a, a um, directed or focused study has been done on uh, of the warming waters here in the Great Lakes, here in Lake Huron. We, we hear about ocean acidification a lot, which is an important issue, um, but it, the whole planet's warming and waters are warming here in the Great Lakes. And, and what does that mean for this ecosystem? The exciting part about it is we are taking these uh, freshwater samples near shipwreck sites and hopefully creating a baseline um, database of information that will feed just the type of projects that, that Kirsten's talking about. What does um, one degree warmer water do for uh, not just the entire ecosystem, but what does it do for a, uh, a decaying wooden schooner that right now, you know, it, it has its mass still standing 100 feet in the water column, sank in a collision in 1854. Uh, it, it just may be another example of an, an effect of, of climate change, what's happening to our, our decaying shipwrecks. So just um, hopefully inspiring some exciting uh, multidisciplinary research right here in, in sanctuary waters. I love that. Can you can you talk a bit, Stephanie, about the eDNA, environmental DNA uh, work of Kirsten's that you were supporting today? Absolutely, because we're really excited about this project because it's 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 a lot to wrap your brain around that here out here on these shipwreck sites where we're gonna, going to be doing these samples. Um, they're from uh, ranging from 100 to 200 feet deep, and it's cold. You, you remember it's cold out here, Tim. Uh, yes. it's, it's cold water. It's deep water. And these shipwreck sites date back to as early as 1865, one of the, the most famous uh, tragic shipwrecks in Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary is the Puabic. And that's one of our sites that we'll be collecting sediment samples from. And just imagining how, how is it possible or, you know, looking at the possibility of human eDNA at these shipwreck sites and what that can really mean for, um, the, you know, searching for around the world and in the Pacific Ocean, searching for um, missing in action um, service people. And the, the, the actual science of the extraction and the um, analysis of these samples and the, the potential extraction of eDNA is is outside my my <laughs> wheelhouse, but um, it, it, we're really excited to be exploring it right here in the sanctuary one of the things we, one of our missions in, in addition of, you know, to focusing on protecting the Great Lakes and its rich history is facilitating and supporting um, all sorts of science here. And so this eDNA project falls right in line with that. It's a great project. And I had previously on a show uh, some folks from Project Recover that uh, look to recover the remains of missing in action service members and repatriate them. And some of their work involves capturing environmental DNA to prove uh, whose remains they were. And I know that your um, one of your buddies today on the on the boat was Calvin Myers, and uh, he's on our team shipwreck, and he, he's done some of that work in Palau, I believe. And so that's a, a nice connection, it's really good work. And uh, so I have to um, tell a little sea story for our listeners. Uh, uh, Stephanie referred to 
our, our dive together in 2018 when I visited Thunder Bay for the first time. And I was such a novice. I still am really compared to the skills of these three great guests of mine. But uh, we went on this dive and I had a new NOAA uh, BCD and it was kind of a rig I had not been used to. And I, like a, a total amateur that I was, did not inflate my BCD. And when we got off the boat, I did a giant stride and hit the, just sunk to the bottom. Lost my fin. Stephanie was my buddy. She got right on me and took care of me and got me all squared away. And uh, and we went on with a dive, which was really just a wonderful dive and a wonderful day. And then the second major mistake I made is I tried. She gave me a eight millimeter wetsuit. She goes, you might want this. And I thought, and I, I put it on. I felt like the Michelin man. I was like, I'll be good with three millimeters. So the, the, the short, the shallow dive at first was piece of cake, really enjoyable. And then we went, and what was the name of the, the boat? The Wilson, is that right, Stephanie? That's right, the D.M. Wilson. D.M. Wilson. It was only like 60 feet, is that correct? Yeah, it's not, it's not super deep. Um, we've got deeper ones, but it's out there in the in the open lake, so it's generally one of our colder wrecks. Oh, gosh, I know. We had a thermocline at like 40 feet, and my heart rate just like jumped up. And I, I remember looking at you, and you, you were so good about it. I just said, this is a little bit beyond my comfort level. And then we, we went on up and, uh, and anyways, you were such a, a wonderful buddy. And, uh, and I want to thank you for keeping me safe on that dive. Oh my goodness. It was my pleasure. And I, I would have been, I would not have gone in a three mil myself. So you were very brave. <laughs> <laughs> you have a dry suit and I'm, I'm motivated to get one myself soon. Well, thanks Stephanie. And, um, well, interesting. Another, uh, so we're all talking about communicating, uh, impact and making an impact, which is just so great. And I, I wanted to go back to uh, Megan, who has some great experiences about this. I was I was looking on um, looking you up today, and I saw because uh, we're all talking about our love of the underwater universe, and I love the term. And you use that term. It was a History Channel show with Jean Michel Cousteau. Is is that is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good one in the archives. What was that about? Well, so they were talking about, gosh, I'm like reaching back into my memory. They were talking about, uh, they wanted to bring me on for, you know, my free diving accomplishments uh, back then. And my gosh, Tim, I'm actually drawing a blank. I don't even remember what we were talking. I've done so many television segments. Um, that was a fun one. I remember they, they actually flew a crew out here to Colorado and we filmed oh. that here. Yeah. And, um, it's that, that's Jacques Cousteau's son. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. And this is, this is how accomplished you are. You have a, you film a shoot with Jacques Cousteau's son, and and you forget because there's so many other things well, you've done. <laughs> well, no. So I wasn't right there with him. They filmed us separately. I did have the pleasure of meeting him, however, uh, way back. I was um, my son is nine, and I was pregnant with him. So it was many years ago. And uh, anyway, I did get to meet him out here at an event uh, through the, it was then called the uh, Colorado Ocean Coalition, and now it's the Inland Ocean, Co Ocean Coalition because there's so many chapters. But I was running a program for them, and I did a, a talk at the Making Waves Symposium out here, and I got to meet him. He was one of the headliners. So, no, I definitely remember that. But the show itself, um, we were talking about, I think we were talking about pressure. It was about, like, you know, being under pressure and they were covering it from all different angles. And then um, usually I work in, I work in conservation messaging, even stemming back that far. I mean, that was, that was quite a while ago. 
Yeah. Yeah. But more, more recently, I've done a variety of things. Um, and I actually have a couple of just speaking of outreach and connecting with people and, and all of that. I have a venue uh, coming up or let me start that over. I should, um, but I have an event coming up that I'm the keynote speaker at for the dinner, but it's the first uh, annual dive into the Gulf event in Galveston, Texas coming up at the end oh, of August. Okay. Yeah, I'm really excited to be going down there. I'm going to be speaking at the dinner on Saturday night, and uh, I think it's going to be a great event. I They have speakers all day on Saturday at the actual event, and then that dinner that night that I'm speaking at, and I'm looking forward to it. I've never been down that way, and I think it's a uh, you know, so it's it's potentially like a whole new audience that, you know, maybe has different ideas about conservation and we can, uh, you know, connect. I'm going to spend the weekend there. And uh, and then also we have I work with uh, actually well, our, our mutual friend, Dr. Steve Giddings over. Yeah, the National Marine Sanctuaries Program. He he and I uh, started working together with Lionfish University, on, which is a nonprofit. And we have Finally, we were trying to do this lionfish derby down in Antigua back before COVID hit. And we got postponed, obviously, and we're, we are finally got some dates on the book. So that is coming up in November down in Antigua, and it's the first uh, Lionfish Derby, and it's going to be held down there. And we're going to have kind of a whole weekend festival event, which is going to be cool. And I'm speaking at that as well, which I'm, I'm really excited to get back down there and to kind of see the, the, this to, to the end result, you know, the fruition of all of our, our efforts down there in the past that we've already put in. So. That's terrific. You know, you uh, talked about Galveston and your dive in the Gulf event. Well, uh, it turns out uh, my wife and I went to the National Marine Sanctuary's big Capitol Hill Ocean Week, and they had this silent auction for various trips and sanctuaries, and we bid on three and won them all. So, oh I'm my gosh! Be, yeah, yeah, it was great. <gasps> that I'm is, be, wow. that's it awesome. is great. I'm going to be diving in the Florida, pardon me, fishing in the Florida Keys with my daughter um, in I think October, October second. Uh, we just did a whale watching trip cruise off Stellwagen Bank, uh, which is another National Marine Sanctuary outside of Boston, which was just beautiful and amazing. And we saw all sorts of humpbacks and a breaching minke whale, and it was great. And then, and then, in your in this in your neck of the woods in this event, the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary off Galveston. Ah, uh, I want to go so bad. I haven't been yet. Which is nuts to me. I mean, I just, yeah, I haven't been well, yet. Interestingly, I won a three-day over like dive trip on the liveaboard called the MV Fling. And it was only for one person. And my wife can't go for different reasons. And if you want to be my buddy on that trip, let me know because I need another person to go with. Uh, oh my gosh, that would be really amazing. <laughs> seriously. Um, let's talk about that offline. But uh, so there's that. And actually, so let me use that though, and um, to to go to um, Kirsten. Uh, you did a paper recently. You're still publishing and doing great things at Woods Hole, and it was on uh, some research in the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I led a team in 2019 and 2020. This is the only thing that kept me sane during COVID. Um, we were oh, yes. an interdisciplinary team, biology and archaeology, going out on a small boat um, with our partner, Marine Imaging Technologies. So we were going out in Stellwagen using Evan's ROV called Pixel, which is a cinema class ROV, meaning that it is optimized for imaging. 
and um, we were recording video and stills from, we went to three sites ultimately. Um, the Portland, which is kind of the flagship wreck for the sanctuary. This is a ship that was a passenger steamer. It sank in 1898 with all approximately 200 people on board. And um, in the storm of two centuries, it was a, a big tragedy in New England's history. It's sometimes nicknamed New England's Titanic. Um, so we, we went to the Portland. Uh, there was a site that was actually a compound shipwreck, these two coal schooners, the Palmer and the Crary, in 1902 were racing into Boston Harbor, collided and sank. And um, the third site that we went to is actually an unidentified shipwreck. We dubbed it the Mystery Collier. It's an unidentified coal schooner from the 19th century. And so... Wow. Yeah, it was really cool, actually. The Mystery Collier is um, copper clad as anti-fouling. They had sheets of copper on the hull. And um, that copper actually held the bottom part of the ship's hull intact. All of the superstructure is gone. The upper part of the wood is all degraded. But the part that was shielded by the copper is still there. Wow, that's great. Um, and so using the video data that we collected from those three sites, I set out to answer the question, how does the structure of a shipwreck influence the community that lives on it? So I was counting all of the Cecil invertebrates. This was my lockdown activity. I would just, you know, sit in my pajamas, you know, locked inside <laughs> my house and yes. count invertebrates. Oh, gosh. Um, and so that study actually showed some really important things. I was able to zoom in on one part of a shipwreck versus another. And so for the Portland, for example, we could tell a very strong difference in what was living on the starboard side of the bow and what's living on the port side of the bow of that shipwreck. And so, you know, that begs the question, well, what's the big difference? It's a fishing net. There is this giant trawl net entangled on the port bow of the Portland. Um, and actually, I saw the same thing on the Palmer and Crary wreck. There was, you know, monofilament, just like fishing line, strung out between the wrecks in some places. And there were, there was this one species of hydroid that really loved the monofilament, but nothing else could live on it. So a major conclusion from that study actually was, A, shipwrecks provide important habitats for sessile organisms like anemones and sponges. You know, the A-frame of the Portland, which is this big metal structure that stretches over the wreck, was covered in anemones. And so those structures don't exist in the natural environment, in the low-lying boulder reefs. Um, so A, shipwrecks are very important. They provide structures and habitats that do not otherwise exist. But B, the shipwrecks are severely impacted by entangled fishing gear. And actually, as a result of that project, our collaborators at Stellwagen Sanctuary actually started rethinking their policies for protecting shipwrecks from fishing gear. So it was really satisfying for me as a scientist to see my work so immediately translated into something that affects the real world. Well, good for you. That was just published this year. Is, is that correct? Yes. Yep. And uh, yeah, it came out earlier this year. You'll notice that one of the co-authors is Ben Haskell, who's the deputy superintendent at Steelwagon. So they were integral. Um, we were working directly with the sanctuary through the whole thing. 
That's wonderful. It's a great place, and I've been to their visitor center and now finally been to their sanctuary, Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And thank you so much, Kirsten. Uh, interesting about the effect uh, on shipwrecks and how important shipwrecks are for ecology, but also maritime heritage, as Stephanie talked about. And Stephanie, I know that you saw, I wrote an article in The Hill about preserving this America's undersea battlefield uh, uh, during World War II in 1942 off the Monitor Marine Sanctuary, where we have about 80 wrecks uh, that were all sunk during the Battle of the Atlantic when the German U-boats were hitting our merchant marine shipping. Uh, and if anybody's interested, the article is uses the term under uh, America's undersea battlefield. Uh, and I, um, you can Google that and check it out. But uh, that's kind of the work that sanctuaries do in terms of shipwrecks, preserving them for the heritage and the, the natural resource benefits they provide. Uh, now, and, and that's important for the blue economy because of this, the tourism and recreation component uh, that, we, that you've heard uh, discussed in different parts of the episode today. Um, and like directly related to that, Stephanie, I, are, you're still a small business owner, aren't you? I, I am. My husband and I uh, own and operate a dive shop, uh, Great Lakes Divers, here in Alpena. And, um, it, you know, it's pretty much just on the weekends because we're, we're very busy during the week. But it is a, it's a popular business to have here. But we do need more, I would say, because we're turning away a lot of charter interest at this time just because I think a lot of it is people are – uh, we're doing our job here at the Marine Sanctuary about, you know, spreading the word about the accessibility of these shipwrecks. Uh, in fact, the sanctuary was featured in a New York Times article last year. Uh, really exciting um, to get that exposure. And another exciting uh, development in the, the tourism side of things is our partnership, NOAA's partnership with Viking Expeditions. Right. And this has been it's 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 just amazing the effect that this is having on the community. Uh, Viking built purpose built a a ship that was launched just this year, launched in Antarctica, and then set sail when they were done with that season for the Great Lakes. Uh, and the first season in the Great Lakes and Alpina has been a stop um, nine times so far this season. Nine and times, really? Nine, oh yeah, nine times. And they have 378 passengers every time they come. And every most of them come and they go on the glass bottom boat uh, that is operated by the Friends of the Sanctuary. And they, of course, go through our visitor center. And it's a, it's a great demographic in that it's 98%, and I was surprised to, to hear this, I didn't know, but uh, 98% American. So there's a lot of potential for, and, you know, people from the Midwest, I, you know, talked to a lot of these, these cruise ship passengers and like, where are you coming from? Um, what do you think of Thunder Bay? And there's, there's some from Detroit, Michigan that are just enjoying a, a cruise through the Great Lakes. The really exciting thing is they are now building, Viking is now building a second ship and there will be 20 plus stops in Alpena next summer. Great, um, really. It's, it's super cool. And it's, it's a great example also of, you know, the, you know, that we don't operate these things in silos and they, a part of our agreement, the a cooperative research agreement with Viking is they are supporting NOAA science in the Great Lakes, which means we can, um, we tell them our needs. We, you know, us in particular here at the sanctuary have a real need to 
um, document these shipwrecks and produce products that for the public. And that's that's a that's a big challenge when you have 99 shipwrecks. <laughs> so uh, working with working with Viking, they want to incorporate real science into their excursion. That's what that's what the people um, really love is not just. Uh, edutainment type science, but I mean, they want to be doing the real science. So we're working with them to, they have multi-beams on board their special operations boat. So we'll get some mapping done, which is huge. Um, they've got underwater robots, so we can deploy some ROVs to take a look at these deeper shipwrecks that are difficult to get to. And what I'm most excited about is their submarines. Um, so we haven't been able to deploy those yet um, because of the Jones Act. Um, but hopefully soon in the coming years, as this science partnership with Viking and NOAA develops, we'll deploy some of those submarines to get a, a real close-up look um, at those those deeper shipwrecks that are the, the real precious resources are so fragile. Um, and the, so exciting times ahead for the tourism industry. So they come to the visitor center, all these passengers, the nearly 400, and then we're right downtown. So they're going to the coffee shops and to the um, to the restaurants and to the 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 gift shop. So it's exciting times. God, it's, it's, it's such good news. I remember when the creative was signed uh, right when I got to Noah, and it's so good to see it uh, coming to fruition. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to kind of close out the um, this this wonderful episode, which I could do all day. I, I love spending time with all of you. But uh, this little mini series I have, I've, 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 I've kind of asked our guests to talk a little bit about breaking barriers for women in the in their fields, you know, because that's kind of been a common thread, and so you know, for you, Megan, in aquatics, you 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 pioneered freediving competition for men and women, and I just am curious on your observations and experience as a, as a woman in the field of aquatics. Has it been positive? Has it been difficult? Do you have a message for young women growing up and wanting to pursue similar uh, experiences and paths as yourself? Yeah, what a, that's a that's a great question um because it has been such an evolution. Uh just freediving especially here in the United States over the past, you know, 20 plus years. And you know, well, like I said, I started back in 1996 uh when I or you know, just before that even because that's when I did my first record and it was such a you know, kind of, it had kind of a cult following from, you know, the big blue movie and things like that and, and, and spearfishers, but it was very, um, it was viewed as very extreme. And, uh, you know, I was compared constantly to like evil Knievel stunts, you know, and all this like drama and all the, the media like to create around it and what, whatever. But it, it was interesting to watch the evolution, uh, because I got out of competitive freediving after I, I led the first U.S. freedive team to Sardinia, Italy to, in 1998 to compete in the World Cup, uh, which it was just one competition that happened back then, uh, always international. Um, and that was the first U.S. team. And that was my last kind of involvement with the competitive side of things, because I just I made a decision that that side of it wasn't really for me and branched off into other things. But, uh, you know, it's been wonderful to watch the evolution over the last 
couple decades, especially for women. And back when I started, I it was really hard to find free dive gear. It was made by only a couple international companies, and it was um, there was absolutely no women sizing in anything. And scuba's even come a long way in that realm um, in the last couple decades as well. But at least back even back then, you could find women's gear. It uh, it was all very uh, you know stereotyped and hot pink, but it, it, you still could find it. Um, now, uh, you know, you can, all of the manufacturers are making free dive gear for the most part. You can definitely find women's sizing. You can, uh, you know, go get a certification from one of the big, uh, cert agencies and even a bunch of the, the smaller ones as well. Uh, and become a freedive instructor. So it's really come so far. And what's been awesome to see is so many more women involved in it. I mean, it was it was anomaly. There was, um, or uh, you know, that's not what I was meaning to say. Um, but it, it was back then. There were a few women worldwide, like two or maybe three others that I knew about when I had researched and they were all international. You know, there was Deborah and Doyo over in Cuba and there was a woman in, uh, in Italy, but it was very, um, very dispersed. And it was, uh, there were a lot more men spearfishers and a lot more men, uh, competitive free divers, uh, in the world stage. And by many, I, it still was a small handful. So it's been really amazing to watch that, you know, take shape over time. And then also with the women divers hall of fame and women setting records and, uh, starting, you know, free diving schools and really, taking it in an interesting and exciting direction because I think that, uh, you know, there's a, the, the women that I've worked in the, with in the free diving realm, um, are, are like-minded in the sense that, uh, the, some people really love the competitive side of it, which is great, you know, and that, and it works for, for a lot of people, but, Another side of the of free diving is that is the accessibility, like you were talking about, Stephanie, and just making it like something that everybody can try it out. Everybody can go, you know, dive beneath the waves. It's not necessarily, and it's it, it's really not in any way, uh, unless you're going for a record or something about depth. It is about that connection to the place and it's about going down and and being more comfortable underwater uh not feeling like you're running out of breath right away or having you know just being able to kind of become part of that environment and then witness what happens and so that's what i've really loved seeing is that kind of you know transition of more women being involved and then some of the implement implementation of a different approach, uh, which is how I've approached it uh, ever since, you know, I, I got out of the competitive side of things, which it really just became about bottom time and being being part of my environment and having those, you know, mind-blowing, awe-inspiring dives where you just go down and you're, you're reminded that, that you're a small, you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself. And I think that those are, that's what I love to tap into whenever I get out into nature. And 
my favorite environment is is that underwater. So it's been pretty pretty cool to watch uh, women really expand into this space. You know, you think about the ama divers, the the pearl divers in Japan, and all of that. I mean, there is a history of and and research that's been done. I mean, physiologically, women are built to be better freedivers than men, which I think is really interesting because there's not a whole lot of sports just in that realm where that is the case. But, you know, we have slower metabolisms, um, just have being able to uh, slow your heart rate and things like that. So it's just, it's an interesting, um, it's been so exciting and so interesting to watch it change over the years and and really come to life in the United States and to be you know I feel very fortunate and very um yeah just really lucky to have gotten into it uh back when I did and then I certainly put in my my time and training and the the blood sweat and tears literally you know into uh the position that I took in that in that sport. And it's been, uh, yeah, it's been an honor to watch it take shape over the years. Well, thank you for being such a terrific role model. And I am so encouraged and our listeners know I have three daughters and I want to see them sort of follow in your wake and uh, our other guests here and, and really get into the ocean and all it has to offer as you describe, you know, in fact, one of my, um, great experiences over the last year, couple of years is free diving with my oldest daughter, Laurel, we went on one of those Jupiter Beach, Florida shark dives, and we got to free dive with 18 to about 18 bull sharks. And it Ooh. was amazing. And I think I sent you the video. Didn't didn't I send you the video? No, I would remember oh. that. You got to send oh, that okay. to me. I'm, oh, all right. You'll get that in a few minutes. <laughs> all right. Um, but it, it, you'll just see how free diving is just such a great experience. And uh yeah, everything you said. Um, but I, I, let me go to Kirsten. Kirsten, we have had many discussions on our uh, episode on our episodes previously about STEM and increasing STEM um, broadly, but also for women. Um, and I'm, I'd love to know your thoughts on this and any advice you have for young women getting into ocean STEM. Yeah. So. I first have to acknowledge that I was very fortunate. I grew up in a family with highly supportive parents. And so when I started expressing interest in marine biology as a pathway, I actually grew up in Michigan, um, you know, a great lake state, but not an ocean state. And my parents basically said, okay, well, we're going to figure this out. Um, I read the biology of Eugenie Clark when I was seven years old, and that's pretty much what sealed uh, this pathway for me. So in terms of advice for interested scientists, I would say just pursue whatever you are interested in. If that comes down to participating in a school science fair, or if that means building a model rocket in your spare time, just finding ways to get involved and explore science from a young age is something that can be really impactful and powerful. In terms of my current career, I have to say that biology is actually one of the STEM fields that has more participation from women. Um, in fact, when I was a postdoc here at Hui for two solid years, I was in an all-female lab. So biology is a bit unique in that regard, but I think 
the stereotypes of, you know, women's math or science abilities should absolutely not be considered as true or applicable to any particular person's situation. Um, for me, it came down to just doing what I loved. And I had that role model of, you know, Eugenie Clark. She is the one who I, I read the book. I wanted to do what she did. And from then on, it was just go, go, go. So, I think for the next generation of just pursuing whatever they love, um, especially for women getting into science, there is absolutely no reason to question that as a pathway. Absolutely. And some of our previous guests have said the same thing. Be bold, go for what you want to do, do what you love. And uh, what's encouraging is the options are many and the accessibility is only increasing for, for women in the ocean and blue economy and blue tech fields. So encouraging and thank you. Uh, let, let me ask Stephanie finally about your thoughts uh, uh, for women in these fields in the ocean and diving and in resource protection and conservation. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I don't think I've, I've had a discussion with you about it, but you just became a, a federal employee. Uh, you were previously a contractor and that's a really big accomplishment. Uh, it's very competitive to, to achieve that at, at, at NOAA. As, as America's lead ocean agency. So Stephanie, what are your thoughts? Well, um, it is so great to hear what Megan and um, Kirsten were saying because I uh, definitely relate to a lot of that and observing just with the dive shop, observing in the last 10 years how I couldn't find a free diving suit myself and um, in, in well, unless I was ordering from France. <laughs> so definitely relate to those things. And what I have found really powerful personally has been seeing people like me um, in roles that I might want to do, just like um, Kirsten reading um, Clark's book. And then the next step, I think, which you couldn't really do with the book, but not being afraid, uh, some advice I would give is not being afraid to reach out um, I mean, I've got so many questions I want to ask both Megan and Kirsten right now myself um, with their exciting careers and and, uh, and not being afraid to reach out and ask advice from people that are doing what you'd like to do. Uh, I think that's really important because we, we all would love to share. Um, very fortunate here at the Marine Sanctuary to have a lot of opportunities to uh, host interns and Recently, we've had, in fact, one of the, you know, I was talking about the freshwater acidification project, and we had a Michigan Sea Grant intern from the University of Michigan come and help us launch that. And that was that was just a really exciting way to, to tie in, in inspiring youth while doing real science and, and creating the stewards of tomorrow. And it can be intimidating. I mean, if you're you know, seeing somebody that's successful in their career and doing what you want to do, that that can be intimidating. But I have never reached out to somebody and come away without some uh, a wonderful connection, um, feeling great about the future, and also some some really good advice. So I think reaching out and talking with people and really that, what that does is really um, uh, fosters and continues and strengthens uh, the, a community of women in ocean and Great Lakes science. Absolutely, Stephanie. And uh, I encourage everybody to seek mentors like these three great, wonderful women wave makers. Uh, Stephanie, I, I, I want to ask you on one nice kind of closing story uh, was your big five dive, which did so much to 
communicate to young women divers that they, they can get into the ocean too. Can you just briefly summarize that and tell people where they can see it? Absolutely. Yeah. The Big Five Dive was a, a sort of a crazy idea to dive all five Great Lakes in less than 24 hours. And we we did it. Um, it was a group of women from all sorts of fields from all over the country, from all over the world, really. And we did it in 22 and a half hours. And, and other groups have done it. Um, dive clubs have been doing it since the 90s. But, but what we focused on and the, the main reason we were doing it was to celebrate Patty Women's Dive Day. That's and right. that, yeah, so that's a, um, a, a campaign to, to really show visually that there are women divers out there, even though the, the percentage of, of the beginning level certification, it, it, is, it is increasing. And I, just in the past few years, we've seen it increase. But I think right now it's at um, 38%. But what's good, important to remember is as you get into those higher, um, uh, more advanced scuba diving certification, that percentage of women participating in those really starts to plummet. And so it's, it's still an important thing, an important concept to, to show the youth out there that, yeah, women can do this. And like Megan was saying, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, the, the a competitive, it doesn't have to be the, the, the biggest and the deepest. It's, it's an accessible world that, uh, you know, we really want to inspire people, uh, especially folks that are not as, as represented as, as they really should be. Yes, indeed. Well said. And look it up, listeners, Big Five Dive. And you can also look for Stephanie Gandula her, uh, being one of the participants. What a, it's a great show. And I was so proud to see that when I was uh, working with you at NOAA, uh, Stephanie. So uh, let's just wrap up briefly and, and go to our final thoughts. Uh, if I could start with you, Megan Haney-Greer, freediving champion, educator, and conservationist. Uh, any closing words for our folks? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be on here and uh, meet these awesome ladies. So definitely want to do some following up uh, on that. And I think really, you know, maybe just in the spirit of leaving everybody with the concept of conservation empowerment, that really, you know, where we're headed is not a sprint. We, you know, the issues that we're facing with the with climate change and and the ocean and the environment and and our place here is the long run. And I think that it's important to look at things through a a specific lens when we get in that in that you know mode of looking at the big picture and how overwhelming that can be and really bring it down to this micro lens of making an impact in the immediate world around you and it's it's literally about what you can just do today in your world in your home you know making simple changes um uh, you know, remember to bring your water bottle. You know, there's incredible statistics out there about how many plastic water bottles that alone keeps out of the landfill. And it's, it really, so it, all of these things build on, on one another and we inspire each other. And I think that, you know, where, where we're headed is, is not, just uh, about, you know, hoping and wishing and, and all of that, because that concept can kind of get really stagnant. But it's really about hope on legs, right? Where you're moving things forward. And it's, it's the hope like, um, 
like Dr. Jane Goodall talks about that it's it's with action and that is what that that truly is. And so with conservation empowerment and that understanding of what you can do right here and now to make a positive impact on the world around you, it can not only change the world around you but it, it can really change your approach to life and how you feel every day, which is huge. So that's what I encourage everybody to do is just to look at the little things. Go, uh, my Imperfect Conservationist web series is on YouTube. There's some, uh, you know, some ideas in there that, uh, that can just start planting that seed where you make conservation habit. That's great. Thank you so much, Megan. Now, Kirsten, Kirsten Meyer Kaiser, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, you're a biologist and assistant scientist. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, Tim, so much for inviting me to speak today and for connecting me with these other wonderful wave makers. Um, I guess my concluding thought would be that the more I get into ocean science, the more fascinating and captivating I find that environment to be. And so I would encourage anyone with even a small seed of interest in aquatic or ocean sciences, maybe they're more closely located to freshwater to just get out into the environment and experience that. Scuba diving is not intimidating. It's not difficult. Um, it's a great way to get out and experience the environment. And it really opens your mind to different um, environmental factors. You feel the currents and the temperature and the light. And I feel like that's very important to contextualize what is this environment that humans live in the context of. And, you know, even as something as simple as going tide pooling, just looking at the biodiversity on the shore, I think this is a, a wonderful ocean world uh, that we live in. And it's important for others to get out and explore that. Well said. Thank you, Kirsten. And finally, uh, Stephanie Gandula, Resource Protection Coordinator and Marine Archaeologist at Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think that um, my, my friends here, my fellow wave makers on the call made some outstanding points. Uh, and so I'll shift gears a little bit and encourage listeners to check out our National Marine Sanctuaries program. There are so many opportunities to, to get into your sanctuary, whether it's free diving uh, or scuba diving or, or um, ocean and Great Lakes science. And it is such a special part of our, uh, our country's natural and, and cultural heritage and, and resources. And it's, it's really accessible. Uh, check out your National Marine Sanctuaries. Find out one close to you. And if you don't have one too close, there are so many amazing virtual programs uh, that you can experience and, and spread the word about protecting these special places. Well, great, great to hear. Absolutely agree. And on the 50th anniversary of our National Marine Sanctuaries, I, I have to say, uh, amen, Stephanie. Thank you. Well, so I appreciate all your time and our guests have been so wonderful. Please give them a virtual round of applause. This was just one of our most wonderful shows in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast. This is our third episode in a sub-series on leading women wave makers in the American Blue Economy. And I want to thank our sponsors at ASPN and Coastal News Today. If you'd like to sponsor a future show, remember to go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising or contact our producer, Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com. Now, 
please join us for our September episode, which will be an encore performance of this sub-series. Originally, I was only going to do three of these shows on, on women wave makers, but the response was so positive that I'm going to do one more. And this is going to be a neat one, too. It, we're going to meet three women in different university programs that are seeking to support regional blue economy growth in their areas. And it's going to be University of Southern Mississippi, Scripps Institution at the University of California, San Diego, and again, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. So this is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Mm-hmm.